trauma-informed yoga is people-informed yoga. The principle that all humans have in their own individual experiences had some sort of experience with stress, trauma, whether big or small, and that as they enter into their yoga practice or any kind of mindfulness or movement practice, that the way that they receive that practice or the way that we are offering as teachers is really important so that we're not kind of getting in the way of people's access to these practices that can be incredibly healing and incredibly resourceful. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. Today's guest host is Rachel Autumn. Perhaps you've listened to her previous episode on the podcast, which was an interview with Joe Murdoch. If you want to catch up on that episode, you can always find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or on glo.com slash podcast. Rachel is one of Glow's yoga and meditation producers, supporting many of our teachers through the full cycle of their class content planning and production on Glow. In addition to her work on our team, Rachel is passionate about facilitating empowering, joyful, and safe heart-centered experiences that simplify and normalize access to daily self-care. For those of you who have listened to my interviews with GLOW teachers and wondered who it was on our team our teachers are speaking so lovingly about, Rachel is one of them. Today, Rachel welcomes Darby Ray to the podcast, and I'll let Rachel make the introduction. Thanks, Derek. I am excited to welcome Darby Ray to the GLOW podcast today, where we will be discussing trauma-informed yoga. Darby is a senior teacher trainer and trauma-informed educator based in Los Angeles, California. She is a passionate advocate for bringing trauma-informed practices into wellness spaces and has worked in many different treatment centers and communities, offering yoga as a modality to assist the body's inherent capacity for healing and growth. In this episode, Darby shares the principles of trauma-informed yoga, tools for self-regulation inside and outside of the container of yoga classes, as well as best practices for teachers while creating trauma-aware sequences and classes for their students. This podcast episode aims to support mind-body wellness routines through the discussion of trauma-informed yoga, However, if you suffer from mental or emotional health challenges, it is not meant to be a sole resource to cure, treat, or heal. We recommend consulting a mental health professional to discuss holistic treatment. Darby, so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Darby, I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast when I was given the opportunity to host some episodes of the Globe podcast, I immediately felt called to share and amplify some of the voices of teachers that I have experienced the gift of learning from over the years. And recently, we welcomed another teacher that we both love and adore. Joe Murdoch was recently here on the Globe podcast. And we talked about creating safe spaces for all in wellness spaces. And so I'm really excited to almost have a follow-up to that conversation in a different direction, continuing to cultivate, create safe spaces for all around this topic of trauma-informed yoga. So thank you for being here. And, and before we get into this topic, I actually want to set a container that 
is very trauma informed for the two of us and for all those who are listening. So for a moment, if I can invite us and anyone who's listening now into a moment for breath, whether that is bringing hand on heart, hand on belly, you might keep your eyes closed or open, fixating them on one point in space. I'm taking a moment to check in, to notice how you arrive. And so Darby, I want to start by asking you how your heart is today. Mm, thank you for asking, Rachel. My heart feels really full right now. I'm so happy to be here with you. You're one of my favorite people. And um, yeah, I'm feeling this is we're recording this in the beginning of a new year and things have finally just started to feel settled. And um, this is also something that I love to talk about and that I love to be in conversation with. So um, I'm feeling kind of electric and uh grounded at the same time and really grateful to be here. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. My heart is also full. So happy to have you here. So let's just dive right in. I want to open the door for you to share what trauma-informed yoga even is for those listening who may have never heard of this topic. They might hear the words and, and hear some context clues as to what it might imply, but can you give us your definition of trauma-informed yoga? Sure. And I'll just, I'm going to go ahead and start right now by saying that uh, I think it's really important to honor our teachers as, um, as you kind of brought up in the intro. And I've taken, we can talk about my bio a little bit later on, but I've taken so many different trauma-informed trainings and been lucky enough to learn from some really wonderful teachers. Some of the teachers that I have been lucky enough to work with the most are involved with or are the authors of a program called Collective Resilience. So I just want to name that because a lot of what I'm saying will be things that I've learned from them. So my definition of trauma-informed yoga, I'll borrow from Collective Resilience, which is trauma-informed yoga is people-informed yoga. Um, the principle that all humans have in their own individual experiences had some sort of experience with stress, trauma, whether big or small, and that as they enter into their yoga practice or any kind of mindfulness or movement practice, that um, the way that they receive that practice or the way that we are offering as teachers is really important so that we're not, um, we're not kind of getting in the way of people's access to these practices that can be incredibly healing and incredibly resourceful. Thank you for sharing that definition of trauma-informed yoga for those who might not have ever heard of this topic before. Can you share some ways that trauma can manifest within the body and why it is important to address it in a yoga practice? Sure. Yeah. I think also it's really important that when we're talking about trauma, that we're not pathologizing anyone's trauma. Certainly um, trauma can show up in all sorts of different kinds of ways. And a lot of them are invisible. So when I'm teaching a yoga class, especially a public class, just a public offering, um, I think it's really important to not assume that everyone is broken or hurt, but to more so err on the side of caution so that we're not recreating shame, pressure, pain unnecessarily as we're like moving into vulnerable territory. So trauma, very common, very um, normal trauma symptoms can show up as stress, fatigue, anxiety, depression, disassociation, um, all of these sort of invisible symptoms. 
And that can manifest in chronic pain or tension in the shoulders or bodies just being held in certain kinds of ways. So I'm really mindful as a teacher to not ever pathologize my students or to assume that I know what's happening in anyone's body or what how their lived experiences might have informed how their body is holding onto trauma. Um, and I also think that on that note, Rachel, it's really important to, you know, to acknowledge that we can never really know what someone what is happening in someone else's body. So whether or not someone is suffering from full-blown post-traumatic stress syndrome or feeling stressed because they just have a lot going on or have had a rough day, um, trauma-informed yoga just understands that humans are complex, right? And that part of healing and part of stepping and taking agency into our own healing means going into the uninvestigated parts of ourselves and to do that with permission and courage and compassion and agency and the ability to kind of shine a light on those areas that we've been afraid to acknowledge. So I don't know if that's the answer that you are looking for, but uh, I just like to make space for my students and my classes to have whatever comes up, come up and to hopefully offer them tools to be with that discomfort in a way that helps them get to the other side where there might be some relief. Oh, that's beautiful. I want to take your class right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Selfishly, I've taken several of of your classes and I know that is exactly the container you established for people. So thank you for sharing that. So you already kind of started beginning to speak to the differences between traditional yoga asana classes and trauma-informed yoga asana classes. Can you decipher a little bit more deeply or more specifically what those key differences are in a trauma-informed yoga practice? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a big believer in, I, I think that the practice of yoga in and of itself and most mindfulness practices in general are inherently trauma, um, not trauma-informed necessarily, but tap into our bodies and our own physiology's ability to self-regulate, to balance out our nervous system and to move through discomfort and discharge uh, stress, any kind of um, buildup of stress response in the body and discharge that naturally. So I think that these practices, which have been around for thousands and thousands of years, were incepted or came came into being in order to give humans tools to move through the very human experience of dealing with stress and tragedy and um, discomfort. In terms of how the difference between, you know, today and 2024, just like a regular vinyasa class and a a trauma-informed one, I think, and this is another collective resilience tool, but that trauma-informed yoga values first and foremost psychological safety. So just as we're taught, many of us are taught in our OG 200-hour teacher training, um, teacher training experiences to cue proper alignment for our anatomical shapes for the asana practice. So how to cue strong shoulder girdles during chaturangas and how to cue hip alignment in externally rotated postures in order to protect the anatomy of our bodies. That just as important, if not more so, is the psychological safety. So the ways in which that can show up or the ways that we can implement that, a lot of it has to do with languaging. I think languaging is huge. So in a trauma-informed teacher, when I when I take a new class and I'm kind of have like my little spidey senses going for um, how I'm like receiving the teaching, a, hu- a lot of it comes down to language. A lot of it comes down into like how the teacher is offering postures or offering transitions without it being 
I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, Rachel. Sometimes it really just feels like how much of it is the, is it about the teacher and how much of it about the teacher offering something to the students. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'll be in a class and it really just feels like it's what it's about what the teacher wants for the class. And when I'm in a really trauma informed class and I'm able to like take a sigh and sit back and really just let myself fall into the flow of it. It's, it feels like an experience where the teacher is really offering for the students and it doesn't really have anything to do with the teacher. It's just the lens through which they're offering the practice. Wow. That's powerful. I feel like that's something to sit in for a second. Now, if the teacher, for whatever reason, is maybe a little frazzled that day or they have their plan for their class and they're not prepared to meet their students in that way, are there some ways that students can create or almost approach their yoga practice or asana practice trauma-informed as well? to have that agency if it's not established externally from the teacher or from your neighbors. Maybe there's someone right next to you that is taking up a lot of space and maybe on one day that's okay, but today it's it's in interfering with what's going on in your universe. Are there some practices that we can take as students to have that agency that's not established for us outside of us? I love that question, Rachel. Um, Yeah, that's a great question that I hadn't really pondered on. So much of our yoga practice, I'll speak for myself. So much of my yoga practice, my personal practice is about learning more about myself so that I can be more, um, I can hold space for myself better off outside of my yoga practice and off of my mat. So that can be, the mat can be a really funny place to practice that. I'm thinking of a class that I took a couple of weeks ago where there was like, a really big male presenting person who was really close to my mat. And there wasn't any reason why their mat needed to be that close to mine. And it was like really bothering me the whole class. Um, And now before this class, I probably would have said, you know, if I was being better, if I was being more boundary, I could have probably asked that person if they would have minded scooching over. But I realized that what I was doing in that practice was I was focusing so much on the fact that this person was quite rude and if they had been considerate, then then they would have moved their mat over. And I robbed myself of the whole experience. Um, And then at the end of the practice, the guy, when we were, you know, rolling up our bus, he said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I did not realize that I hadn't given you, that I had taken up so much space. It was really nice practicing next to you. And it was just a really kind way to acknowledge that. And I was like, you know, I think for me, it didn't like, it wasn't so close that it, it, it wasn't like he was sweating on my mat. It wasn't like he was touching my my arm or anything like that. So I think in that case, I probably could have just asked myself, is this really, um, is this really interfering with my ability to access yoga? And the answer in that case would have been no, not really. And then I could have shifted my focus to be more on my own practice. You know, I could have used a little parigraha, a little bit of, you know, letting go of attachment there. Um, in terms of teachers, in terms of like being in a class where I feel like the teacher is not very trauma informed, I think it's really important to acknowledge and to remember. And even in the instance that I just shared with like the person who was practicing next to me, that we're all humans. And I do think that a huge principle of trauma informed yoga is to trust and believe and assume that everyone is doing the best they can with the resources that they have access to and the tools that they have. Um, so if I am in a teacher's class and there's just things right and left, they're sending off little, like this teacher isn't trauma informed signals. I've gotten to a point where as a student, I'm like, does it like, for me, can I, is it, can I still be in this class and feel safe in my own body? Cause that's really what it's all about is feeling safe in our own bodies. 
And most of the time, the answer is yes. And I do have to notice that like sometimes the people pleaser part of me, the like the person who wants the teacher to think that I'm doing a good job will be maybe following cues that I know aren't right for my body or don't feel good in my practice just so that I can please the teacher or feel like I'm doing things right. And so I've gotten better about really noticing or observing when that's showing up and asking myself in those moments, is this appropriate for me to be going using this transition when I know it doesn't feel good in my body just because the teacher cued it and saying, no, I think it's okay for me to actually do what I know makes sense for me. So a lot of it is like reclaiming agency and making choices based on what feels right for me without making it like a giant shame or blame fest for the teacher or the person next to me. Um, Cause really we're all responsible for our own stuff, right? In terms of being a student, I think that you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been practicing for 20 years. I've been teaching for around 10. And uh, the practice continues, the practice of teaching and of, of practicing <laughs> continues to reveal different ways in which I can practice these tools of yoga and um, in a way that continues to offer me more and more safety in being in my body. And a lot of that includes boundaries, but also includes letting go of things. Thank you for sharing that story of the person that was next to you and what that made you feel. Because also as someone who is so seasoned as a teacher and a student and in this, again, sometimes we can assign um, a certain type of experience that we assume someone in your shoes is having every time that they practice. And again, you're speaking to the humanity of all of this. Earlier, you mentioned collective resilience's definition that you borrowed here and shared with this community of people-informed yoga. And I think that's exactly what you were just speaking to. So back to the responsibility of teachers as they hold space, safe spaces for students. I want to speak about breath work for a second. Um, this just came to mind as something that we usually tap into at the beginning of practice to establish a sense of presence, whether it's just noticing your own breath, like we did at the top of this episode, or a certain style of breath work that's being offered for whatever purpose. Breath work, I know, can be triggering for some. In a trauma-informed practice, do you still go about integrating breath work into the class or do you allow students to choose the style of breathing at the top of the class or throughout the class? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So as you mentioned, breath work can be an incredibly resourceful and valuable tool for helping people tune into safety in present time. Breath can be, it's a really, it can be a really powerful physiological tool for bringing us into presence and tapping into what our body experience is communicating to us. And on the other side of that, if someone's body is holding onto a, a large amount of stress or trauma on any particular day, breath can actually tap into areas where we're not quite ready to experience or like little stored pockets of tension, I like to think of them as, that are um, that would be quite overwhelming to tap into, especially in the setting of a traditional yoga class. So that said, I think it kind of depends on where I'm teaching. For my regular public classes, I'll offer like very simple breath work in the very beginning of practice. 
And I'll name right off the bat, you are welcome to join me as I lead us through a little bit of breath work. And you're also welcome to just breathe any way that works for you. Um, there is no, and I'll just name, there is no wrong way to breathe. You know, I've worked with students who are like, I really want to be practicing Ujjayi, but it really brings up my anxiety or it makes my heart beat really fast. And I'm like, okay, well then don't do it. And they're like, but I really want to be doing it because that's what you're supposed to do in a yoga practice. And I say, no, there's no supposed to anything. Everyone is supposed to be doing and figuring out what works for them. So if I do teach breath work, if I do um, offer like a couple of minutes of guided breathing, which I like to do because I think it can be really helpful, I make sure to name right off the bat that it's totally optional. And if this way of breathing, and sometimes it's helpful just even to name um, if this type of breathing or focusing on the breath is kicking up some anxiety for you, that's really normal. In that case, maybe the breath isn't something you focus on today and then offer an alternative. So breath can be really resourceful in a yoga practice as can grounding, literally like feeling the ground beneath you um, or as can just like feeling your own body, like maybe even taking hands to shoulders and giving your arms a squeeze. So, and then I always am really really open to anyone wanting to chat after class. And I'll say if this, if any of those things, if you have questions about any of this, please come and chat with me afterwards. So I think normalizing it is incredibly powerful. Um, I had a student who'd been taking my class for years and one time came up to me after class and was like, Hey, I have a question. Is it normal to have, uh, the focus on the breath make me feel anxious? Like my heart. And I'm like, Hmm, say more. And they told me how every time the beginning of practice, when we did breath work, they felt their heart beating really quickly and they like all of a sudden started spiraling into all of the emails that they had to write and all of this. And I was like, yeah, that's really normal. And that was a big conversation for that person. They're like, wow, this whole time I thought there was something wrong with me. I think there can be something so powerful for people just for normalizing things that probably a lot of us are experiencing and something really powerful and people just waking up to what's happening inside of them without pathologizing or adding shame or blame or any of those aspects that um can really isolate and keep things on a really internal focus did that answer your question absolutely okay I was curious I was thinking about the breath and how again you spoke to both sides of it how it can be super expansive and help us access those places we're ready to tap into and, and move through and also it might highlight those areas that we're not quite ready and so when students are practicing in a group class setting versus in like a private one-to-one -one session, do you have a different approach? Are you speaking, are you, as a trauma-informed yoga teacher, are you making an attempt to speak to all of your students at the top of class to kind of know where they are in that moment, the way you would in a private one-to-one? -one? Or is it really like this practice of reading the room, seeing how people enter the space, if they are willing to come up to you and share things, allowing that to be the bridge, um, al allowing them to create that bridge of dialogue, or are you initiating that as a teacher? I, I think in public classes, um, other than, you know, depending on where I'm teaching, if I'm at the front desk, I try to make a point to make eye contact and learn people's names and, you know, as people are checking in. But a lot of times people don't really feel like chatting or necessarily want to be like making eye contact and um, having a conversation about why they're here at yoga, sometimes they just want to go in and lay on their mats. So I try to just keep it really open. Um, and then before a class starts, I'll make a point to introduce myself to, uh, as I'm like looking around the room, I'll kind of take note if someone just is clearly doing their own thing and not really wanting to um, 
engage social engagement, like face to face, then honoring that. And also just saying, uh, you know, kind of the disclaimer, if anyone has any injuries or anything else happening in your body that you would like to chat about before we get started, feel free to raise your hand and I'll come over and we can have a little private chat. Um, so that kind of opens the floor for people to be as as uh, in communication or in their own experience as they want. And then I also uh, end class by saying, if you have any questions about anything at all, I'll be at the front desk and I'm happy to chat. If you just want to say hi, I'd love to know your name. Um, just to kind of keep that feeling of community and social engagement present so that it's there if people want it. And I kind of feel that way about most, the way that I lay out a trauma-informed trauma class in general is there's all of these different ways that we can offer resources and tools as teachers. And not one resource is going to work across the board for everyone. In fact, not one resource is going to work for one person all the time. I think it's a really day-to-day -day shifting and flux sort of experience because our nervous systems are always in flux. So um, my goal as a teacher is to sort of sprinkle or pepper in as many um, resourcing tools as possible in hopes that people can pick and choose what works for them on any given day, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really skillful thing to do and mindful thing to do as a teacher. And many of us learn that in our regular 200 hour teacher trainings, you should ask permission before you use utilize hands-on adjustments. For example, I actually wanted to bring that up because I have taken your class and I love the way that you offer the option for hands-on adjustments. I don't know that if you do this all the time, but I've been in classes with you where you'll bring a deck of cards or like an Oracle deck. And you'll, in my experience with you, we were all already seated, maybe eyes closed or eyes open. You gave us those options. And if you raised your hand or turned your palms up to face the sky or palms down to face the floor, that meant Either you'd like hands-on adjustments, you're welcoming that, or hands down was the opposite, for example. And so not only did you give us the option to opt out or opt in, but then you let us do it privately. We weren't showing to the whole room, I am willing to have this assistance or not, because that can also bring up things for people. Maybe there's a pressure that happens when you see everyone else obliging and you, and you not. Um, is that intentional for you? I'm, I'm assuming it is. And can you offer, <laughs> if it is, can you offer us just more tips and tricks, I would say, as a teacher who might not have done a, an official trauma-informed yoga teacher training, um, something that they can use or tools that they can use to, like you said, sprinkle in all of those opportunities for students to practice agency throughout their, their practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting conversation topic, especially right now. I, I'm someone who loves giving hands-on adjustments and I'm also someone who loves receiving hands-on adjustments. Um, so I, this was something I was kind of struggling with before the pandemic, because in a purely trauma-informed practice, there they're probably would like to err on the side of caution and to err on the side of safety. We would just probably wouldn't offer hands-on assist. And in most spaces that I, if I'm teaching in a space that I know holds a lot of trauma, I'm probably not going to even like, there won't be hands-on assist so that no one is like keeping their eyes open, regardless of whether or not they've opted in or out in terms of whether or not hands are going to come onto their bodies. Cause that can, that's just can be a really vulnerable situation. Um, so before the pandemic, I was like, I'm really struggling with this because I love them. And I know so many students who do, 
and also I, I feel like there's this element of like, uh, of risk here that I don't really know how to grapple with. And then the pandemic happened. And then when we came back into teaching in public spaces, everybody's sense of personal space was really different, right? Like everyone was masked, masks were much farther apart. I felt my, like the back of the hair on the back of my neck bristle. If, um, if a teacher walked too close to me and I was like, okay, everyone's sense of, of personal space is different. And I was like, I don't imagine a world where I'm ever like giving somebody an adjust in child's pose ever again. But then as things started, as we started to feel more um, comfortable around each other, I started hearing feedback from students that they really missed the hands-on assist. And that another part of coming back from the pandemic was that we really missed that contact with each other. And I think that part, that, that touch to touch in a really safe uh, way can feel so incredibly healing and can be re resourceful itself. So I was like, well, how do we do this? I had to relearn how to do hands-on adjustments again. And I borrowed the technique that you were talking about with the cards from a studio that I practiced in in Denver called Kindness, where it's like, okay, we're going to give everyone the opportunity because I've seen like no touch cards, but I'm like, but isn't the whole conversation about agency, it's not really black and white cut or dry, right? So I love, and it's been really interesting, Rachel, to see how people respond. So I'm like, okay, this is, you know, my spiel at the beginning of classes. There's some cards at the front desk or at the music stand, what have you. If you want hands-on assist, or you think you might enjoy hands-on assist at any point during practice, please take a card and place it in front of your mat. And if I see a card in front of your mat, I'll know that it's a go and that you would welcome hands-on adjustments. If at any point you change your mind, just slide the card underneath your mat so that you can, you know, you can signal to me that you're, that it's, it's a no-go. And I really try to normalize that. I'll even say, you know, sometimes people love hands-on adjustments during class, but not during Shavasana. Or you might normally love hands-on adjustments, but then halfway through class realize that like you're, you're hyper-vigilant to where I am in the space just to like keep track of whether or not you might get. So if at any point, and I notice people like playing around with cards out, cards back underneath their mat. Um, and it's cool to see. So I think, I know there's students who love hands-on assist most of the time that I'll notice that they like don't take a card sometimes. So I think that the opportunity to like really choose on any given moment and to be able to change your mind is really important. And on that note, um, you asked if I always do this. Lately, I've been not always doing it. I, for example, you know, I normally teach about five public classes a week. And the last couple of weeks, I've been subbing a ton because it was the holidays and people are sick and out of town. And I found myself just feeling really tired and really depleted. And I was like, if I'm teaching four classes today, uh, I'm not doing hands-on assist because it takes a whole level, a whole other level of energy and um, energy exchange. So I just didn't put the cards out. And I had a student coach who was like, oh, I really missed the cards. And I was like, yeah, I just didn't have the energetic resources to be doing hands-on assist today. So I think it's really good to practice that as well. And it was in part of my head, my insecurity and my imposter syndrome was like, oh my God, they're going to like not come to my class anymore because they come because they love the assist that I wasn't able to do it today. And I was like, no, I think this is a really healthy way of mirroring boundaries that if I don't, if I'm not able to give really grounded and really present um, hands-on assist, then I'm, I'm going to opt out of that myself. So the students can opt in and out. And so can I. Mm, the students can opt in and out. And so can you. That's powerful. That speaks to, again, just the humanity of all of this, that we are people too, as the teacher, as the person who is establishing and holding that space, you're also a person and also get to choose the energy that you're moving forward with. 
And with that said, since you started to speak to the self-care of a teacher, especially in these environments, such as the communities that you uh, often work with, where you know that there is a, a higher charge of trauma in the atmosphere, does that require a higher level of self-care from you for your own personal, spiritual, and energetic maintenance? Or what does that look like for you to keep yourself balanced while you're serving those communities? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I've gotten a lot better at this. Uh, I used to not be uh, I used to not be very skilled at taking care of myself and holding and, you know, my schedule was packed. I was like, I can do all of these things in one day and know that some of those um, classes I'd be teaching or communities I'd be in would be a lot of extra energy. And I, I, you know, would just do it all anyway. And I was really depleted and really tired. And it was, it really affected my ability to self-regulate for my own um, mental wealth or mental, mental wealth and mental health. Um, so yeah, these days I try to be really mindful to not pack my schedule. And when I am, when I am teaching in communities where I know that there's, it's going to take a lot more energy and a lot more, and when energy, I mean, like there's, there's something to be said for sure. The physical ways that you're putting yourself in space, like how much am I driving? How much, how many hours am I spending? But then there's also so much that comes along with the, um, I don't know, like the cognitive fatigue or the, I feel like compassion has a charge as well. So how much I'm exercising compassion, how much I'm really connecting to other people. And if I know that I'm going to be with a community where there is a lot of trauma health, then I'm going to make a point to like clear out before and after like giant chunks of time so that I can come in really prepared and leave all of my stuff at the door. And then when I exit, I'm not just rushing off to the next thing. I'm like really sitting with and integrating the body experience of being with these communities so that I can then come back to a self-regulated place myself. And then from there, I might, you know, take, I have a notes app in my phone with different things that I find resourceful. And it's everything from my yoga practice to certain friends that I can call to a cup of hot tea, to taking a walk, to going to the beach. So I'll like open up that app in my, or I'll open up that notes in my phone. I'll say like, what of these things in that moment feels like it would really recharge me right now and recharge me without the agenda of, okay, so then I can move forward and do more. It's recharged me so that I can then start to come back to a place of feeling regulated myself. And I think that's one of the most important things about being a yoga teacher, honestly, is um, how we, I kind of hate the term practice what we preach, but how are we using these tools as yoga teachers to regulate our own nervous systems and to come into a place of feeling safe and healthy and whole in present time so that we can then show up that way for our students, but then we can also show up that way in our communities and with our people and with our families or with our families of choice, um, because that in and of itself has a huge ripple out effect, right? Um, one of my teachers says that self-care is community care because as human beings, we are like it or not, always, always co-regulating with one another. When I go to the grocery store and I'm waiting in line and um, I'm really impatient because I have somewhere to go and somewhere to be. And the person in front of me is taking a long time and has a lot of groceries. Even if I'm not communicating with that person, like, you know, I might be like tapping my hand or looking at my watch or sighing, like all of those. And there's so many other nonverbal ways uh, that we are picking up on each other's um, cellular energy. Our bodies are designed to do that, which is actually kind of cool. 
So the more that I regulate my own nervous system and the more that I can like come to a place of feeling really able to handle, you know, whatever's thrown my way in any given moment, the more that that uh, is, is part of co-regulation with all of the people around me. So that in and of itself is community care. Um, and I think that's really important as a yoga teacher to make sure that that is a priority before I'm out in the world trying to tell other people how to move their bodies. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it sounds like what you're speaking to is that the trauma-informed yoga piece of it all far extends beyond the hour, 45-minute, 75-minute time that you are in your asana practice. We're speaking to asana practice, but of course we know that yoga extends far beyond the postures. But in speaking to taking a class, the arc of this trauma-informed approach happens way before you get to that space and continues long after, and and it's a cycle. Yeah. So after we get into the space, just getting back into the the classroom atmosphere for a second, can you walk us through the arc of a trauma-informed yoga sequence? So you've already greeted your students at the door. You've given them the opportunity to share or not share, to engage or not engage. You've created a safe space, maybe cleanse the energy of the space in your own unique ways the class starts and what are the first few things that you're doing? And then can you walk us through the arc of that, that class? How are you building your sequences? Are there postures that you typically avoid or is there languaging around the postures, modifications offered, et cetera? Yeah. The first thing that I'll do when I open up a public class and this, I'm going to speak specifically to just like a general public class. Um, not so much one that I would teach specifically to, um, like a trauma-informed specific class to a community, like not a class at the at the Veteran Center or at the LA Mission or at some of the other places that I teach that I'm, you know, will, would approach that very differently. Bringing trauma-informed lens to a regular public class, which I love to do, um, is just is really starting to pepper in those resourcing tools that I was mentioning that I think are are um, tangible in the beginning of a practice. Because when you think about it, a lot of times when I come to my yoga practice. I'll lay down on my mat and I'll just completely zone out and I'll be like still running through my list of things to do and emails that I need to send. And then all of a sudden the teacher's like, all right, let's get up and start moving. And I'm like, oh man, I missed everything they were saying. So I think a lot of us, when we come to practice, there's still so much happening on the um, uh, stimulus level and what, so many things that our mind is sorting through that I like to do my best to be clear, concise, and to offer very simple tools. So I'll start with like, okay, let's feel the ground beneath us, feel your hips. Uh, Maybe the back of the head gets a little heavier. And then I might offer some breath from there. I'll also say, hey, it might feel really nice to be still, or it might feel really nice to like move around a little bit. So, and then I'll even name, sometimes movement and rhythm can feel very soothing for nervous system. And sometimes stillness has the same effect. So you might try both and just see what lands for you today. So that if someone has a lot of anxiety or is hypervigilant and slowing down and stilling is really uh, disruptive and will do the opposite of making them feel grounded and present, that they know that they can move around. Another thing I've started doing is saying, you know, if I'm like, all right, we're all going to start laying down on our backs. Um, I'll say if there's a different shape that you'd like to start in, if you're if you feel more comfortable in a seat or if there's any other way where you can get more comfortable, maybe bending your knees and knocking them together, then take that instead so that it doesn't really seem like there's a my hope is that it doesn't seem like there is a um, 
like one right way to be a yoga student, right? Right off the bat, I'm, I'm hoping that my students are, that I'm communicating to my students that they are, I'm going to, I'm going to offer up a lot of things and you should keep what works for you and leave what doesn't. And I, and I say that, um, and then I'll start moving really slow. If I do start with like, I don't know, some core work or something like that, I'll give lots of options and make sure that it's all optional. I think across the board, I want to make sure that my students know that everything is optional. Um, and then just like a typical vinyasa practice, I'll start with a little bit more grounded work, like a, a grounded crescent, maybe, um, poses that have a lot of support. So there's not a lot of balance work involved. And then I might add on some more challenging layers, but I'm, I'm careful to name that just because something feels more challenging doesn't think it's better. So I always say, choose the variation of this, of this pose or the shape that feels most interesting to you or that feels best for you. And I'll say sometimes less is more, sometimes more is more. So you choose what's best for you. Um, and then as I start to build the practice, you know, certain things that I try to stay away from, I'm, I'm always, you know, if I, we started in a low crescent lunge, for example, and then the next flow, I might be teaching a crescent lunge. I'll give the offer. We had this, we had this, or we, ex we experienced this pose from a more grounded place a little while ago. You're welcome to take the back knee down right now as well, if that grounded version felt better for you. Um, so just throwing out a lot of options. I'm also trying to take the word modification out of my vocabulary. It's hard because it's, it's in there, it's in my vocabulary, but I like the word variation because it leans back from um, like a perceived hierarchy of poses. Like if somebody, some, if a modified side plank is the bottom knee down, then that implies that a side plank with both legs and hips lifted is like the correct pose, right? And the knee down is like the modified version. So I've been trying to take the word modification out of my vocabulary. Um, and then just teaching to all different types of bodies and abilities is, you know, if I notice that we're in a forward fold in the beginning of practice and there's a lot of people with really tight hamstrings and they're like struggling to like try to touch their toes, I'll just like to name like, hey, the goal here is not to touch our toes. The goal is to find just the right amount of intensity so that you can stick around and breathe for a little bit. So bend your knees as much as you need to. Um, I'm mindful of twists. Uh, I love a good prayer twist in a crescent, but that shape doesn't feel good in a lot of different bodies I've observed. So if I'm doing any kind of twist, I'll start it with like a big open arm twist. And that I might add on a layer of, you know, maybe opposite hand to opposite knee for a bind sensation. And then add on, if you would like to take a prayer twist, that's an option as well. But be mindful to not imply that any one version of the shape is quote unquote better or correct. Um, or because it's harder, that makes it, you know, more valuable. Uh, and I do a lot, I try to be mindful with my vocabulary with that. That's a, you know, and I still sometimes to be quite frank, I, f I find myself saying things where I'm like, oh my God, that was not trauma informed. I wish I would have worded that differently. So a part of this is also just being kind with myself and letting myself be human and make mistakes too. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think that it depends on the style that you're teaching. Like you spoke to, this was a, an example of a general open level vinyasa based practice but we can still apply these tools to any style class. And I think that's what you're speaking to. The two of us work in an environment that uh, has a lot of offerings for power yoga and a lot of opportunities to get really sweaty. And I think that there is, like you said, that assumption that harder is better, more is better. And so the more that teachers can remind students and just remind ourselves 
that that's not necessarily the case, the safer the environment becomes, the more welcoming the environment becomes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the beginning of practice, also, I'll take people into a child's, I'll take the whole class into a child's pose. And I'll say, hey, this is a great place to come back if you need a moment or two or three or four to ground or to find your breath. Regardless of what I'm offering, please feel free to come back to this shape. And it's really fun to see people taking that option. I have people who take child's pose for like half of class. And I'm like, great, take that child's pose. You know, the goal of the practice is not to like check all the boxes of all the poses or to get anything right, but more so to like really give yourself a playground to feel into what your body needs in that moment. Um, something I've been doing recently, this is kind of new, but I think it's really fun and interesting is, um, moving into a balanced shape, I'll offer to stay in the shape that's more grounded. For example, if I have people in a triangle pose and I'm offering a half moon as the next shape, I'll start with, all right, we're in this triangle pose. Both of your feet are on the ground. If you are interested in exploring a balanced shape, I'm going to cue us into half moon, but if feeling more grounded and staying grounded feels like it's what would serve you in this moment, then please feel free to stay here. And then I'll cue into half moon and I'll point out, this is pretty much the same shape. Just one version has a little bit of a different balance aspect to it. And I've been seeing more and more and more people choose the grounded shape. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I don't want anyone to feel obligated to do anything in my class, but I also want people who are like, I really want that half moon to feel like they have permission to explore that as well. Yeah. Would you say that these same tools and approaches to holding that safe container, that place where students have agency over what they're doing applies to the internet space of online yoga teaching as well. Would you say the same cueing, the same languaging and sequencing applies, or is there anything else to be mindful of when holding space in the online container? I think it's pretty similar, Rachel. I, you know, I taught a lot of online stuff during the pandemic. And I think one challenge that can come up is oftentimes when we're teaching in the online space, unless you're on like an open Zoom, you're not seeing, you don't have the visual of your students in front of you. So sometimes it is helpful to take visual cues from the feedback you're observing. Um, and if you don't have that, if you're just teaching a pre-recorded class or if everyone's cameras are off, um, it can feel a little bit more disconnected. But I think all of the same stuff applies, you know, there's, um, I'm, I'm happy to, to send, send y'all some notes to put in the show notes of some teachers, some trauma-informed teachers that I have that have a lot of just online content that you can just go and watch. And I think there's tremendous power in the accessibility of that, right? That you don't have to get yourself to a class or you're even pay, have financial resources to pay to get into a class that you can actually from your own home or from your own phone even access yoga and do that from the safety of your own comfort zone. Um, so I think the same things apply, being really mindful with your language, offering lots of different variations, taking things really slow, right? And then offering people the opportunity to maybe find their own pacing. I think it, it's pretty, you know, it's there's not a lot of differences there, except for in the, the teacher's experience of what they're actually getting to see in terms of live feedback. Yeah. And it, it feels like the student too gets to even have more practice with personal choices because they're not getting that exterior validation from a teacher. And maybe that might even be a container if you're not feeling safe to go to a studio or you don't have access to a studio, then creating that safe space in your home might be an entry point as you explore trauma-informed yoga. Yeah. 
So if there were teachers who already teach yoga and are like, shoot, I've never actually studied trauma-informed yoga specifically, but I feel like I'm already utilizing some of these tools. I want to learn more. Where would you suggest they start? Is there any advice you have for anyone who wants to either begin learning a little bit more about what we've been talking about today or really wants to dive in and start to specialize in this style and this approach to teaching yoga? I took my first trauma-informed training immediately after my 200-hour training when I discovered it was something that I could do. And this was a long time ago before trauma-informed yoga was um, had the, the buzz, I'll say, that it has today. It was, it was a very new field. Um, so now, you know, years and years later, I'm happy to report that there's so many excellent trainings out there. There's so many ways to get access to this information. I think that trauma-informed yoga trainings are getting more and more popular as research is showing, as Western research is showing the benefits for yoga for those who are struggling with trauma symptoms, but also anyone who is just experiencing stress or, um, general fatigue. And, you know, we live in a world that has, we're more overstimulated than ever before. So I think that these tools uh, are incredibly helpful if you are a yoga teacher, if you are a yoga student, but I'm going to go ahead and broaden that umbrella and just say that I think these are tools that are so, so valuable for any single person who's interested in learning about them across the board, whether you're work in the, um, a medical profession, or if you work in the education system, or if you're an accountant, or, you know, I think it really is, they, these tools can be so helpful for everyone. And I think that one of the cool things that I see within trauma-informed trainings is that folks that have taken the time to build trauma-informed offerings really just want people to have access to them. So there is a much higher level of accessibility in terms of, um, how much things cost or, what kind of scholarships are available. So if you're someone who's listening to this and you live in, um, you know, like maybe somewhere small, like a small town and don't have a lot of access to like yoga studios, there's so many online resources. And also I would just, I would encourage you to just Google trauma-informed yoga wherever you live and just see what comes up because there's more and more and more and more. Um, This information is is spreading more and more. Um, I... We'll go ahead and plug the 200-hour teacher program that I teach in, which Rachel is a graduate of, uh, the Y7 teacher training program. We've really made a commitment to offer our 200-hour training from a holistic trauma-informed lens across the board. So yes, we we spend a lot of time on trauma-informed yoga specifically, but also we take that lens with all of the different topics that we delve into. So history of yoga, um, yoga sutras, Eastern anatomy, the chakra system, but also the Western anatomy. How can we be trauma informed in the way that we understand how our joints work and how our body holds onto and manifests different, different kinds of tension based on what kind of body you're born into. So um, I'm really proud of our program and the way that we've really integrated um, on like a cellular level, the trauma informed aspect. If you are not interested in a 200 hour teacher training program, and are just interested in learning more, I cannot recommend the training at Collective Resilience highly enough. The teachers there have been, are some of the pioneers in this field. They uh, are people who I respect and admire more than words can say. And they've also, because they've been doing this so long, have found a really, I feel like they've really found their groove with a really powerful 
and uh, impactful way to deliver the information. And as someone who's assisted a number of their trainings and been involved with a number of their trainings, I would say like, you know, I don't know if this is accurate, but I would say like maybe 50% or more of their students that show up at these trainings are yoga instructors or involved in yoga. But there's also people from all, all, you know, all different walks of life, all different kinds of career paths. Um, So it's a little bit less uh, yoga focused, if that's you. So Collective Resilience, check them out. They have um, four different layers of, of, I think, four or five different layers of training at this point. But you can start like the basics and then you can like build on and add more. They have an excellent social justice training that is, I think, the second tier of their training, which is very much involved with, um, you know, this, the collective resilience uh, credo. And I, and I very much agree is that we cannot talk about trauma-informed yoga without talking about social justice as well, that the two go hand in hand, are interdependent, and that in order to understand one, we must understand the other. And then from that, if you want to continue to build on there's a deeper dive into um, the vagus nerve and polyvagal facilitation. And then there's also more applicable um, trainings in terms of like, how do I sequence and how do I work or teach yoga and trauma from spaces? So I'll recommend them. Um, also look up, if you are interested in more, um, I'll plug individually those teachers from Collective Resilience, Hala Corey. If you look up her website, she has so many excellent resources on there. There's interviews, there's podcasts, there's practices that you can take. Uh, there's week, uh, monthly meetings that you can participate in. Kira Hagland, um, one of my favorite teachers. She also has a lot of different offerings on her website. And she also teaches weekly Zoom classes through a studio that I love called Santa Monica Yoga. So you can log on on Zoom. Uh, I haven't done it in a little while, but the last time I did there weren't, it was the kind of thing where Kira doesn't see you. And so it's, you know, you kind of have that anonymity of like being, you know, able to experience her live teaching, but not also having your screen on. So she teaches twice a week and Santa Monica yoga in general, they have a lot of really good trauma informed teachers on their staff and they have virtual offerings. Um, And if you're on the East coast, I'll also plug exhale to inhale, a really excellent trauma informed organization. They teach, they have trainings, but they also have lots of trauma informed uh, taking opportunities if you want to take classes. And they also have like really, um, really lovely kind of like bite-sized virtual offerings that are often free. And all of these places and all of these people have lots and lots of tiered pricing and scholarship uh, offerings as well. So accessibility is not uh, an issue. Thank you so much for sharing these resources in abundance, just so freely and compassionately. And thank you for your time, your commitment to crafting these spaces that hold people accountable, hold them safely, that help people resource and regulate in ways that they are able to then sustain life and be their best selves on and off the mat. So Darby, I'm so grateful for your presence here today. Thank you so very much. I just want us to be able to stay in touch with you. So where can our listeners find you online? You can find me on IG. My handle is Darby Ray uh, M-A-C. So D-A-R-B-Y-R-A-E-M-C. And uh, website is coming live soon. So I'll get back to you with that. Thank you so much, Darby. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. 
Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.